Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're here to break down some of the developments and, and discussion going on with the Republican effort to repeal and replace the ACA. Today, we're going to talk about a, a topic that's coming up more and more and that's um, often misunderstood. It is that of the single-payer system. That's coming in more and more with the political discussion than it ever was before. And so to start off, when we are talking single payer, Suzanne, we're talking about um, health care costs being paid for by the government rather than by private insurance. So if you think about the system that we have in place now with Medicare and Medicaid, it's really kind of an expansion of those systems. Healthcare itself would still be provided by private physicians. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yes, that's correct. So, so the main change is that the we would it would eliminate the private insurers, um, but healthcare itself would be delivered in the same manner. Okay. So, with that general definition out there, let's start with the history. Where did this come from? How long has this idea sort of been out there? We can go back to as far as 1945. So, the end the World War II had just ended, and President Harry Truman was inaugurated. And within seven months after his inauguration, he began pushing for a national health care system. And he proposed that every wage-earning American pay monthly fees or taxes to cover the cost of all medical expenses in time of illness. He also added on another provision that called for a cash balance to be paid to policyholders in the event of injury or illness that would replace the income uh, those individuals lost, and that morphed into an expansion of the Social Security system. But uh, if you think of the timing, so the nation was very weary from the war and there was paranoia over the threat of communism. The American Medical Association was a very powerful lobbying group and they capitalized on this paranoia. So they attacked this single payer system or national system as socialized medicine. And so it ultimately failed. If you think about it, though, you mentioned the Medicare Medicaid system. Those really, we have actually implemented a single-payer system as it relates to senior citizens and young children and the poor through both of these systems, which were enacted back in 1965. And then as we go further or closer, I guess, to our current time, the First Lady, Hillary Clinton, actually spearheaded the Health Security Act, which was, again, designed to require all citizens to enroll in a government-approved health plan, and it forbade them from ever exiting the plan. But one one interesting aspect of that that we've heard um, when the ACA came out, I'm sure we would hear in the future as if there's additional discussion on single-payer system, was this idea of a national health board, which was a seven-member panel whose duties included determining what constitutes medically necessary care, also referred to as a death panel. Right. We did hear that term a lot. Yes. As ACA came into play, right? Right, right. And so anytime you start talking about the government's hand in it, you know, they're also going to be potentially... Um, wanting control over what is considered covered medical expenses. Right. So, and even then, more recently, as we come to current day, even in 2017, um, there's a Democratic representative, John Conyers, who introduced a bill on January 24th, right after the inauguration. And he sought, and I quote, to provide all individuals residing in the United States and U.S. territories with free health care. So it's interesting, for one, that he said residing in the U.S. instead of legal residents of the U.S., and we'll see that again um, actually in California 
um, who is seeking to provide a single-payer system even for undocumented workers. Um, But he knew it would go nowhere. Obviously, we have a Republican Congress. It wouldn't, you know, he wanted to bring up the discussion, but he knew it would go nowhere. It just shows you that it's, we're starting to hear about it more Mm -hmm. and more. Wow. So that's a fabulous recap of the history at a federal level. As you're saying, there's more talk of this nationwide. So talk about two states most recently, California and New York. What, what's been going on there as far as single payer? Right. So, so California, it's Senate Bill 582. They, their Senate voted um, a bill out of, out of the Senate to establish a single payer system. It now has to go to the state assembly for consideration. And it's considered a very ambitious bill because it covers everything from routine checkups to dental to nursing home care, all without any copay, premium, or deductible. So it sounds like a panacea, and it it is. I mean, they have not figured out how to pay for it. What's interesting is this legislature has passed single-payer bills twice before in California, but both times they were uh, vetoed by Governor Schwarzenegger. And again, we've got Governor Jerry Brown, who is not supporting this idea. So I I can't imagine it would get past his desk, and I hear he's really pushing to not even bring it to his desk. Um, But the legislature itself estimates that that the bill will cost at least $400 billion dollars which is more than the state's entire present-day budget. And we know they've had some wow. challenges with budgets in their state. Um, so it seems like uh, it seems like it's creating really um, some real challenges. So even if they are able to recoup half of the amount from the federal government and they're able to eliminate some of the existing state and local health programs that are, are pulling from their budget, they estimate that they would still need to raise $200 billion. And one suggestion is that they would do so through a 15% state payroll tax. So currently, they're already the um, the highest state income tax at 13%. So ser- that would have a significant impact on employers and employees. Right. That is a significant percentage, 15%. Right. Wow. And uh, so then if we turn to New York, last week, they uh, the, the state assembly passed a single-payer proposal for the third consecutive year. The Senate failed to vote it out through the previous two attempts. There's thoughts that the current Senate may, uh, it may have more legs in the current Senate. But if you look at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is a Texas-based free market think tank, they reviewed their proposal and they said the annual price tag for the New York Health Act could be as high as $226 billion. So it would quadruple their current tax burden in that state. Wow. So significant increases and those increases would be felt mostly by employers, employees, or at least heavily by employers and employees. So those are two of the more recent California and New York. We've seen some other states go through this and and fail, quite frankly, right? And we're talking Colorado and Vermont. Can you tell us a little bit more about those two states? Right. So Colorado is the most recent. They rejected, actually, there was a bill that Colorado voters rejected last fall that would have cost more than $64 billion in their state. And the plan was expecting to pay for a portion through a new 10% payroll tax. Um, And even then, they said the plan would have run a $12 billion deficit within 10 years. So we're back to the same issue of how do you pay for this? If you look back to now Vermont, uh, they actually did pass the bill entirely through the legislature um, to set up the single-payer system, but they couldn't figure out a way to pay for their $4 trillion cost. Uh, the legislation was signed into law, so it got further than any other state has so far. Um, but the price tag was just too much. It was more than the state's entire budget. Again, it's a consistent theme that we're hearing is that state budgets would either double or triple 
um, by adding the single-payer system. They had considered a 11.5% payroll tax and an income tax hike of 9.5%. And when they got to that point, the governor pulled the plug instead of deciding to bankrupt the state. But from a side note, one of the things that I found really interesting is that one of the architects of the Vermont single-payer system was Jonathan Gruber. And I don't know if you recognize that name, but he was one of the architects of the ACA and certainly came out in the news in um, some not so um, promising uh, light, I should say. He thought he that he could get it past the U.S. Um, because they were not smart enough to we understand. Paying attention the, enough to know, understand the costs that were going on. Right, exactly. Um, but there was another professor from Harvard who had spent a good chunk of his career helping governments install single-payer systems that was also involved in designing the plan in Vermont. And, and he had set one, for example, up in Taiwan. But even with these minds that were, you know, appear to be having plenty of background in this type of, of thing, and they still were not able to create a system that would be workable. One issue that created the downfall for Vermont system was the level of coverage it promised. So it was not merely gold-plated, but more than platinum. So if you think now to our current ACA um, exchange system, the bronze plans have an actuarial value of 60%, where the patient pays 40% of the health care cost. Platinum plans have an actuarial cost or value of 90%. Vermont's actually ended up being an actuarial value of 94%. Um, so very high, very rich plan. Right. And one of the reasons they did that is when they they looked across the plans and what the standard actuarial value was for the plans in Vermont. Again, in Vermont, we're obviously talking about a much smaller population than we are in New York or California and only four carriers, but their average actuarial value of their plans was 87%. They didn't want to institute a single-payer system that took away from what was being provided currently in the state, so they wanted a rich plan in that state, and it ultimately ended up being their downfall. So when we talk about single-payer systems, we talk about providing access and providing free health care. It's not free. Someone ultimately has to pay for it, and generally that's going to be on the backs of the taxpayers. Right, and great examples of that in those four states that we just talked about. So that kind of gets us up to speed as far as what's going on in the United States, but let's talk about other countries. How do they spend less on health care than we do? Well, that's true. So the U.S. spends nearly one-third more on health care than the second highest spending developed country, which is Sweden. And this is both in per capita dollars and as a percentage of GDP. So generally, when we look at why are we paying so much more and you look at what's, what's happening in other, other countries, they are paying less often because there's a reduction in cost that comes down to just limiting the availability of health care. Other countries are spending less on technology, on research, on innovation, on payment to their physicians, on the, the, the design of their facilities, and they have longer waiting time for care. So no one provides, there is not one country out there that provides unlimited care for free. Right. So talk about cost sharing that other countries impose on their citizens. Well, if you look to Australia, Japan, Germany, Switzerland... Um, and there's others, they require their consumers to pick up more out-of-pocket costs than we do, than we average here in the U.S. So you really, when you're comparing um, systems and you look at other countries and think they're, that the other countries have a single-payer system that is that looks terrific, you really need to get down to the details and compare the healthcare systems. So, for example, in France, about 90% of their citizens have supplementary health insurance. You think of our Medicare system, many people buy MedSup 
policies. And so that's similar in, in France. They have supplementary health insurance um, that layers on top of their single-payer offering. Right. So that adds a complexity to the discussion overall because we often discuss healthcare systems country to country, but we don't often get down to the details of what is actually being covered, what's being asked of the citizens to pay out of pocket beyond just receiving this health care from the government. So it does add complexities to the discussion. You mentioned earlier uh, a potentially reduced level of innovation in the United States under a single-payer system. That seems a little bit concerning. You know, it really is. And I think um, it's something that we really have to keep our, our eye on because other countries rely heavily on the U.S. to drive medical innovation. More than half of all new drugs are patented in the U.S., and 80% of non-pharma medical breakthroughs are introduced in the U.S. So what is going to happen to these innovations if we move to a single-payer system and reduce payment to, to physicians, reduce payment to drug companies, reduce payments overall? Wh- what's going to drive that innovation? Are other countries now going to pick up those innovations, or is the burden still going to be on the U.S., and then nobody ends up picking it up? Are we going to see an overall drop in healthcare quality over time? Right. So that seems like a valid concern. What are some other concerns with the single-payer system? Well, for example, you know that uh, Bernie Sanders was running on the single-payer system uh, methodology, and during that time, the Tax Foundation reviewed his plan, and they said his plan would have reduced the GDP by 9.5% and reduced after-tax income for Americans by 12.8% over time. So in in some ways, and in some depending obviously on the design of the single-payer plan, it could destroy jobs. It could hurt the American economy. So again, so, although some people would get free health care, others ultimately would end up paying for it in some form or another. Right. So those are all valid concerns, valid discussion points, I think. You've talked a little bit about some of these other countries, Sweden, Australia, Japan, Germany. What countries are really getting it right here? And- it depends on what you mean by right. If you, you look at Canada, for example, they do outshine the U.S. in some metrics. So they spend $2,233 less per capita on health care than we do in the U.S. Um, but their life expectancy is 81 years compared to the U.S. at 79 years. So it's, you know, by those metrics, certainly Canada has a better system. Now, nearly all of their funding is through taxes. Less of it, you know, less than half of it comes from income tax. So the major portion of it really comes through corporate and sales tax. So somebody is paying for it. Um, It's at the corporate and the sales tax level primarily. Um, But by some metrics, they do have a better system. Right. If you're just looking at those numbers, it seems like they have the best system. But what's the rub there? What's the drawback to the Canadian system? I don't know all of the drawbacks, and I don't want to pretend to be an expert on the Canadian system, but certainly one drawback that you hear and you read about is the wait times for care. For example, if you want a knee or hip replacement, it can take easily six months or more. Um, they, they report that their wait times are up 95% since 1993. And you look at other countries like the UK, their wait times are also an issue. Um, the UK's National Health Service claims you shouldn't have to wait more than four and a half months for your approved service. So that that alone, like four and a half, they say that it should be four and a half months. To us, that seems outrageous. Right. Um, but in reality, their, their reports show that it's actually much longer than that. So they one report said that you could wait as long as eight months for cataract surgery. Other reports spoke to waiting three years for a hernia operation. And one woman waited over four months for radiation therapy when she had progressive breast cancer where 
the standard of care was four weeks. So we certainly are, um, if you look at, at wait lines and, and wait times to receive care, it seems ironic to me that moving to a system that allegedly provides greater access to coverage ultimately results in less access to coverage due to these longer wait times. Right. So definitely another valid concern when it comes to wait times. And we've talked a lot about both sides of the argument here, the good and the bad, with, with some of these single-payer systems in different countries. Tell me, though, why people are advocating now for a single-payer system. So one issue is that advocates say that, that if we eliminate the insurer or the intermediary, we're going to drive down our cost. And I think if you, you look at carriers generally, they're just generally seen as the bad guy. They are the ones that do the unpopular stuff. They're the ones who we have to, when we have money taken out of our paycheck, it's going to the insurers to pay for our health care coverage. When we have medical care that's not covered, it's, you know, we're blaming the insurers on that uh, lack of coverage. And so they really are an easy target. But if you look at it purely from the standpoint of, are we really going to drive down costs by taking out this layer um, the answer would be no. And this is because their margins are so small. So on average, according to Ford, and the insurers have a 2.2% return on revenue. And if you compare this to like the pharmaceutical industry, which is closer to a 20% return, or the medical equipment industry, which is, is about a 16% return, they're clearly not in that, uh, you know, not in that ballpark. And so if you really want to eliminate some of these thicker profits, you're not going to target an insurance company. Right. And so perhaps there are other parties that we're not even getting into, such as uh, providers, hospitals. There's lots of other players in the game that are also probably have bigger... Um, profits, right. Profits. <laughs> yes. And there's there's also this argument that the government can lower prices by fixing the health care payments. And so clearly, when the government has greater power over financing and delivery of health care, it's also going to have greater power over the benefits and the medical procedures that we get and the prices that the providers pay. So both we may be um, harmed by it, by we, I mean the individuals who are receiving coverage, and the providers as well. So Ameri American health care is expensive, but it's not expensive because of insurers that are making so much money. It's expensive because the insurers are weaker than the government in negotiating prices. The government doesn't really negotiate. It sets prices. Insurers have to negotiate. So if you look at the government and other countries, I mean, they set the price for certain drugs. For example, in Swiss or Switzerland, or they merely say, we will pay X amount for a Pfizer drug. If Pfizer wants to sell in our country, they can at that price. But this is the price that we will pay. So having that type of power obviously can have an impact on the cost. Um, there is a concern also that if you do lower payments, though, to these providers, these drug companies, it's going to have the inevitable effect of reducing the quality of care. You are going to reduce the incentive and reduce the funding for investment in technology, for investments in medical equipment, for innovation, for research. Uh, if you look at providers and medical, medical doctors in general, if you're paying them less, you are going to um, lose some measure of quality in people who are attracted to that profession. You're going to have fewer highly talented people that would be willing to undergo those years of training that it takes to become specialized, for example. Um, and so I think overall we'll see a reduction in quality, reduction in medical research, reduction in innovation. Right. There's just less incentive to really go out there and shoot for the moon as far as innovation great procedures, great health care. Um, Correct. It's not there. 
So that gets a little bit to um, some of the frustrations I think people feel regarding the debates we're having in America regarding the ACA, and that is that a lot of the discussion seems to be about who should pay for this, um, shifting around which entities should bear the, the, the bulk of the burden when it comes to payment. Um, usually we're talking about premium payment in that instance. It doesn't really get to a bigger issue, I think, and that is why are we paying so much? What's, what's, why are we um, having such high healthcare costs overall? So do you think that that's sort of the central issue here? I really do. I do. And it's obviously for our purposes of the ACA, um, uh, we, we won't get to this one in time. There's, they will have to make some movement on the ACA and its repeal uh, sooner than we can ultimately as a country come to some decisions on the cost of health care, which is really where the focus should have been these past several years is how do we drive down the cost. Right. You have to look at the U.S. in general. We pay more for health care than citizens in other countries. So uh, I was looking at some data that was gathered by the International Federation of Health Plans, and it shows that an MRI cost, for example, just over $1,100 in the U.S. compared to 600, I mean, excuse me, compared to $363 in France. That's a significant difference. Huge. Right. An appendectomy cost uh, close to 14000 in the U.S. and only 4700 in Switzerland. Um, a C-section costs thirty-six seventy-six in the U.S. and only six hundred in Canada. So there's something wrong here, and we all we all know about medical tourism now, which is becoming more and more popular, where where people will travel to other countries because they can get the same medical procedure for so much less. It seems like we need to tap into this and figure out what is driving the healthcare costs in our country, and it, rather than just focusing on how are we going to shuffle the deck in terms of who's paying for the premium cost of this coverage. Right. And it seems like we're just stuck on that. But this has been great information regarding a single-payer system. I think it's one that will help us all better understand the debates we're having um, in the country right now and that are coming up in states and with the federal government as we talk about health care reform generally. So thank you, Suzanne, for sharing right. all that information. Right. We will be watching the states, and we will certainly be reporting on what happens in the states and be involved in, in advocacy in those states, for sure. Right. So thanks again, and thanks everybody for joining us. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. All right, thank you. We'll see you next time.